My name is Margaret Ingram, and I am delighted to be with you today and honored to be able to read to you from my new collection of poetry called Exploring This Terrain, uh, released in April by Paraclete Press. I'm going to be reading a poem entitled Unforeseen, which says, For Chip. If the stag had not shot from his sentinel post high on the beach line ridge, and split the cinder trail just one pace in front of you, tossing his head in full careen so we would see every point of his eight-tined rack before he disappeared into the echoing ravine. We would have passed through that October day as heedless as every buck during the rut. You would not have stopped short to ask if we had noticed how near and fast unforeseen danger had dared to make such a casual pass before us. And we would not have moved so attentively into the hull of another man's timber. I would never have heard your daughter say, these look just like Papa's woods, when we approached the place where a wide creek meandered on past itself. Nor, after I forded first at the narrows, and looked back as you spread your feet to keep everything in balance and reached to guide her over the fell trunk. Would I have chanced to see in that flash as white hot as the flame tail of the fleeing buck, an afterimage of our father and me and how closely the generations follow when they encounter unfamiliar waters. You just heard Margaret B. Ingram reading from her new book, Exploring This Terrain. I'll be talking with her today about her work, her experiences, and why poetry matters now. Welcome back. I'm Susan Mulder, and this is Poet Kind Podcast. Today is July 15, 2020. I was traveling to the other side of the state over the weekend, the first time I've been any distance for months. I was struck by the fullness of summer that surrounded us as we drove, the heavy branches of trees, the dense growth of wildflowers, weeds, and even corn lost its rose in the thickness of green. Down to the orange barrels and pocked roadway, it was full-on summer, something that felt so normal, so timeless, yet dystopic when layered on the understanding that nothing around us remains unchanged. The world we were driving through was not the same one we traveled through before. Those of you who subscribe and listen will know that it's been a while since the last full episode here at Poet Kind. I personally have missed the routine of great conversations, editing, and then sharing the gift of others' voices. The creative juice needed for this and other activities has felt kind of dried up, inaccessible, and I think this isn't as unusual as I originally thought. Anytime I've reached out for personal connection, I've heard the same thing over and over again. I can't seem to write. I can't paint. I can't find that place of creating. And other iterations of the same situation, we laughingly joke about COVID brain. But the truth of it is, I think we're all so overwhelmed, not just by COVID, which taken alone would be a challenge, but the stories unfolding before our eyes. Change that has been long overdue has erupted everywhere. And our isolation in some ways provided laser focus on truths that perhaps we were too distracted to confront fully. Time to look at what is actually playing out in our country and to bring our sadness, our frustration, anger, and deep desire for a better world in a way that may not have happened in a different theater. In some ways, doing a poetry podcast right now feels like something that doesn't matter. Insignificant in the face of racism, brutality, a pandemic, and so many other things, but then I was reminded that the gift of allowing someone to tell their story matters, which compelled me to get back to it. Poet kind may not change the world, but if I can make a better place, even for one person who needs to hear something good today, 
then it's worth it. Today, I'm welcoming poet Margaret B. Ingram to the podcast. She is the recipient of an Academy of American Poetry Award, a Sam Reagan Award, and numerous residential fellowships at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She's been a guest lecturer on poetry at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., as well as Virginia Theological Seminary, and collaborated with composer Gary Davison to create Shadow Tides, a choral symphony that commemorated the 10th anniversary of September 11th. Margaret, I would like to welcome you. Today I'm talking to Margaret B. Ingram, a poet uh, who has a second life too, and we'll get to that sometime in the interview, but welcome. Well, thank you, Susan. It's just a delight to be with you today. It was um, a distinct pleasure when someone from Paraclete Press reached out to me and recommended your work and asked if they could connect us. And it's been such a, a treat to read your new book, Exploring This Terrain. And I thought, I am just excited to share you with our listeners. Well, thank you. I am just delighted to have that opportunity. I would like to start, you know, basically how I start every interview. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how your writing came to be and and that sort of stuff for us. All right. Well, I am a, a Southerner, as you probably can tell by my mm -hmm. accent. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, which was a very different place um, mm -hmm. in those years than it is uh, today, um, and was there uh, through high school. And then I've moved around the South since then, um, went to college in, in Tennessee, um, taught in Tennessee, uh, did graduate work in uh, North Carolina, uh, and I've been here in Virginia now for a number of years, so I'm very deeply a, a Southerner. I'm a teacher, or was, um, as well as a, a student. But most significantly, I think, I'm, I'm a poet. Obviously, we're mm -hmm. here talking about my books of poetry. And I've been asked the question before, and so I'll ask it before you do, or <laughs> answer it before you ask it. Um, when did you know that you were a poet? And I think I knew that very early on in my um, life. You know, Ovid said, uh, poetae nascitur non feet. A poet is born, not made. Mm. And I believe that to be true. Now, certainly that probably could be said of people who practice in other genres, but I can't, I can't answer that question. Um, the first poem that I remember writing, I wrote in the fourth grade as part of an assignment. Um, and I got in trouble for it because, <laughs> I, <laughs> because my fourth grade teacher um, didn't believe that a fourth grader could have written it. Oh, interesting. And um, went and, and uh, called my mother actually. And, you know, on the one hand, that could have been a really discouraging experience that could have easily um, derailed my poetic life. But the, um, the vigor and the, the, the seriousness with which my mother um, approached it, I think, was a real, uh, really important moment in my life, a validation of what it was that I was doing because she just wasn't going to have anybody say that about her little girl. Um, and, and not just because I was her little girl, but because she knew that that was my work. Yes. So, um, so that was the, the very first thing. And again, it could have been really discouraging. Um, so I have to thank my mother and not my teacher. Mm -hmm. But later on, along the way, I need to thank my teacher because my eighth grade English teacher, who was himself a poet, um, encouraged me, took some of my work, unbeknownst to me, sent it off. And so my first published poem happened in, when I was in the eighth grade. Wow. And, and that just, um, that was just the confirmation that I needed, the encouragement that I needed. And the other thing that happened then which I think is very important for folks who are not 
poets or artists or, or whatever someone's calling or profession is, but are their friends, was that my friends, instead of being um, jealous or in, instead of just sort of disregarding what had happened, were very supportive. They were excited for me. Mm-hmm. And I um, see them still. Uh, decades and decades later, and they say to me, Peggy, we remember when Mr. Warren sent your poem off and how exciting, excited you were and how excited we were for you. And um, that's a signature of good friends. It's a signature of good friends. It certainly is. But it also was um, an indication of, of where audience might be. Mm-hmm. And that audience might be all around. And what I felt like, I often felt like I was doing for myself because I am such an introvert and was writing those poems and learning poetry closed away at my own desk in my bedroom at home. Um, I needed that kind of uh, validation, I guess, to understand what it, what it really was um, that I was embarking on yeah and that I was embarking on something that could be a career for me yes Um, not just an activity um, to do on a Sunday afternoon in the south in those days when you went to church in the morning and um, nothing was open and you had a dinner your, your dinner at noon and then your parents went to read the newspaper and Peggy went to her bedroom closed the door, sat at her desk, opened her Bible, and read the Psalms in the King James Version. Mm. And that is when I really fell in love with poetry and its meaning and its music. Yeah, that's, that's great. And to have such validation at such a young age is a rare gift. And to have it come from so many different directions, but, you know, I think frequently creative people, visual artists, writers, poets, composers, you know, they're um, condescendingly encouraged. Oh, isn't that nice? Right. But what are you going to do for your real job is usually the next thing that, <laughs> that, that follows. You know, you can't make a life out of this. But what a great thing that you had that support from your family, your friends, your teachers that that really just kind of built that structure beneath you to keep you going exactly it was a real it was a gift yeah um, without a doubt now one of the things I know about um, after reading your work but also I mean I did a little bit of research so I knew who I was talking to but uh, something that comes through very clearly in your writing is your relationship with the visual and you're a photographer. And when I found that out, I love that. I love the two sides of the the creative coin. Shall we say, you know, just because I kind of live in those two realms as well. Um, You do it much more masterfully though. And and you you deal with image and you deal with the natural world. Um, And then also deep personal and we, we talked a little before, but about relationship. Um, you've been described as a terrain poet, and I, I love that term. And, you know, but you had some ambivalence about that, it seemed, in some of the reading I was doing. But really, terrain, and I, we talked a little bit prior to the interview, and I, I wish I would have saved it for this. Terrain is more than landscape. And then those are your words. It's more than landscape. It's more than just looking. And I couldn't help but think of um, the wine term. And I don't speak French, so I'll probably butcher it. Terroir. Terroir. Yeah, terroir, which alludes to the the character and the, the taste that is taken into the grape. And I think that's what you do. You you acknowledge the landscape, but you draw into the poetry, the life and flavor of what it is you're trying to connect with. Well, thank you for saying that. I I feel like that that is what happens. And I don't know that it is deliberate with me. 
um, it, I just begin by being attentive. Mm -hmm. Always say to me, how do you decide what you're going to write about? And my honest answer is, I don't. I, I know that that is peculiar to a number of poets whose work um, I highly, highly respect. And, and friends who are writers who I've known who will go and say, well, today I'm going to write about this. Um, that doesn't work for me and it never has. Mm. It's just a matter of, of being aware of, of, of sensing. And again, sensing is an important word. And I don't, I mean that um, in, in, in an intellectual way, but I mean that also is involving all of the senses. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it's, I, my work usually, it is very image focused. And again, I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that I am a photographer. Um, I, it, it's also um, aware of light and, and the impact and the effect in, that light has on an image and mm -hmm. on um, the experiencing of an image and a moment and the necessity of light. Uh, so, so all of those things happen, but I, but I also sometimes begin a poem because I hear something. It's not just a visual image. Yes, mm -hmm. I do pay much more attention to a visual image because those images are the ones that translate most easily onto the page and into words. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it's the, my whole, I guess my whole being, it, that, that sounds a little bit corny, I guess, but it happens to be honest that, that my whole being gets um, drawn in to, yeah. a, to a moment. And then my job as a poet, as a wordsmith, is to try to uh, to articulate that, to translate that into language um, that can give the reader an experience. And I'm going to say an experience. I'm not going to say my experience because I can never do that. And I sh that would that would be extraordinarily arrogant to assume that I would want to do that. Right. Um, but to try to um, incite in them the same kind of um, excitement, I guess, that I feel when, um, when the world opens up to me in these images and, and delivers um, the, these truths. And I hope that that's the other thing that I hope that my book does is that it, it looks at um, it harkens after truth, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Now you have, let's see, one, two, three, and I'm sorry. So seven, seven distinct divisions in your book. Maybe this is a silly question. Do you have a particular favorite? No, I don't, I don't think I do. I was very deliberate in the choice of seven. Mm -hmm. Seven being the perfect number, right? Um, and I could have easily um, contracted those. I mean, a, a couple of the the first two have to do with what is more uh, traditionally understood to be terrain. I mean, they're they could almost be called landscape or land and and water. Um, so those could have been. Um, combined into a single one. Certainly the, the men and women could be combined. Um, but I, I felt like um, my relationship with each one of each general subject of the section or those things relationship with me were discrete and were different. Mm -hmm. and we're all important in their own right. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting as I went through your book um, that each individual section, so out and for our listeners, you know, it's the first one is in mountain shade. The second one, all the water touches. The next, the small plot. 
and then the company of women, the next one, and of men, the wisdom of creatures, and what abides. Each could very well stand on their own. And I felt like if you took one out, it took something out of the story mm. overall, because it seemed like you took, and I talk with my hands, and so people don't know this, but it seems like you took this, this large idea and just gradually condensed and refined and then brought it to a fruition in the end with what abides you know all this goes on all this in the wide great wide world but what abides you know you just distilled it down into this beautiful there's nothing simplistic about it this beautiful simple resolution did you i mean was that that's absolutely probably very intentional yes yes absolutely intentional that that's that is the place that it would end with, without a doubt because it does that i hope it brings all of the the disparate parts together yeah. or at least it, it if it doesn't do that it gives meaning to them all yeah would you be willing to take a moment and and share one of the pieces from your book I would be delighted to do that, and I, I'm going to sort of turn the table if if it's all right, <laughs> and ask you if there is a particular one that you would like to hear. Oh well, I I have my like I don't. Peggy can see this. Nobody else can. I have my pages like all bent. I'm a monster. Some people say that that's a terrible thing to do to a book, but when I'm looking for something, I like to go right to. I don't want to have to look for it. And so I bend my pages, I put little arrows on, on my bit, on my book so that I know, because sometimes you just need that. And you know what? I'm delighted that you do. I do the <laughs> same thing, but I think oh, that's it good. says an awful lot about, I mean, and knowing that, I would think someone would be appalled, a writer would be appalled if there were no bent pages <laughs> in their book in your library. Uh, I write mine as well, so an underline and, and even in my own books. Well, I, I think, you know, maybe what I'll do is I'll ask you to read two, if you don't mind, one now and then one at the close of the interview. That, if you don't mind. I would be delighted to. Okay. Um, I like, there's, there's a tremendous amount of storytelling, but your final section to me is just, I don't know, my, it does something to my being. So I'm wondering if you would read Keeping Silent, or Keeping Silence, I'm sorry, Keeping Silence, for right now. I would be happy to read Keeping Silence. And Keeping Silence, the epigraph is from Habakkuk 2.20. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The mist distills in strands of luminous beads along the quivering lips of leaves, poised to tell their vain imaginings, secrets hidden soul within their keep. What sends the sleek red foxes back into their lairs before the day descends, or what it is that moves beyond the trees, when what it is that moves is more than breeze. Why moonlight never has the strength to make the stars recede. Old oaks are poised to give their own account of these. Yet silence is their inheritance, a sacred bond they cannot break until wind wills to turn leaves into holy instruments, instill the gift as tongues by which they whisper, trill, sing its songs, then tumble into quiet once again before they heed its one last call to fall burnished without toil, transform the barrenness of autumn's muted soil. I love that. We live, we live in the woods and my trees are often, often the people I talk to. <laughs> I know that sounds wacky, but this, my studio is surrounded by trees and we have sassafras and oak and beech and um, just 
all kinds of wonderful things growing out there. Um, but we are experiencing oak wilt. I don't know if you've heard of that. It is um, something that kills an enormous oak tree in the matter of a couple months wow. from, from the root up. And it started last year. And it looks like we may have a few more that are going to have it this year. And in that keep silence, I, I kept imagining my, my oaks, but also transferring it, that, that metaphor to all of us, really. Um, so thank you for that. that. That was kind of a personal choice. <laughs> thank you. And, you know, I describe myself as, quote, having um, grown up in the woods outside my childhood home. And um, those words were as deliberately spoken as any words that I put into a poem. That, that was absolutely true. Um, my father was a builder. He was in construction. Mostly he, di he did, um, you know, large buildings, commercial construction. But he did build our house, mm. and, um, or all of our houses, and, and my grandparents' house. And there were two small houses on a, a relatively new street that was just being developed. Developed is not even the right word, but having houses built thereon. And um, there were only a couple of others when, when we moved in. I was about three or four at the time. Um, one of the only children on the street. And there were just acres, literally acres and acres of woods out behind the house. And uh, they were safe for me, except for the snakes, the, the copperheads in particular. <laughs> but... Um, so I spent my days, Susan, growing up in the woods, going out and again, I will use the word exploring, exploring the woods. That's exactly what I did. Um, paid incredible attention to the flora and the fauna. Um, we had a creek that ran through the back. Um, and I, I did. I, I, I grew up there. I saw what was beautiful. Um, I saw life. I saw death. Um, I learned to be alone and be comfortable with it. Um, I learned about silence as well as, as about sound. So um, I feel incredibly blessed by that. And, um, and the fact that I was a little explorer, I wasn't back playing with my friends um, because I didn't have any there. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, exploration, is I think that exploration is an opportunity uh, that we, I don't want to sound like an old coot, but that we had <laughs> that more, that we had more, more of in, in, in years gone by and that children don't have now. Well, I think in exploring it's, it's permission to be curious an undirected curiosity. Yes. You're not, and I think so much of our kids' times now, and I, and I, you know, I, okay, I am an old coot. I've got grandkids and, you know, and I see so much structuring of their lives around things to keep them busy mm -hmm. that they lose a little bit of that freedom, that curiosity has gotten a little bit stunted in some cases. And the fact that they seldom teach poetry in school anymore, that really bothers me, but. <laughs> I agree. And um, it's a breeding ground for imagination, I think. Mm, absolutely. Now so, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna step into a little bit of a different direction, if that's okay. Absolutely. And uh, I am going to reference some conversation I've had with varying people about the role of poetry where we are now. And some people are like, I can't write. How can you write? How, you know, how can you read poetry at a time like this? You know, you're living in a heightened state of crisis and whatever. How do you speak to something like that? How can you not read poetry at a time like this is my answer. Because poetry is a means of dealing with difficult questions in detail and engaging all of the senses at the same time. I think we talked about that earlier, mm -hmm. but I think that um, 
Well, I mean, just look back in history and, and, and look at that. If we look back at history, poetry was the um, primary tool by which people recorded history and passed it on and passed on their heritage, passed on ideas, um, introduced new thoughts. That, that's true. It's, it, it was the, the very first literature because right. before we had writing implements and other ways of communicating and, and preserving um, thoughts, relationships, history, whatever, um, we, it needed to be done in such a way that it could be remembered, memorized, yes. um, easily um, shared and, and uh, passed down generation to generation to generation so that it, it was not lost. Yeah. And this period of time will pass. And what we are living in and with and through will pass where it will take us and what we will look at like after it passes, we will not know. But I think that it's very important that people be reading and writing poetry now, just as it has been in uh, generations and millennia before us. Exactly. That's where the record will be kept. Yes. Um, and it's not the newscast because, because the, again, the newscast is not involving, I don't believe the whole person. What's happening now is is more than action mm -hmm. and, and words and 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 slogans painted on um, the sides of buildings. As as important as those are, and as much as they are necessary to give focus here, it's it's much more than that. And and we need to be able to capture the full significance. Yeah. Well, I think there's a the humanness. Of people and, and the, yes. Exactly. The, the, the involvement human. of the person and in every yes. aspect of the person. Yes. Uh, and that's what poetry, that's what poetry does, I believe. Yeah. And again, it, it's poetry. It's a sad thought for me. And, and maybe this was not what is not what other people were meaning when they ask you that question. How can you write poetry now? Or how can you read poetry now? Or, why do we need poetry now? But it, but it, it is a, it's a very sad thing for me to, to think that we, that they would think that we could have lived without poetry. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Who, who are the writers you go to, you know, when you need that solace or when you need inspiration or when your own writing is just, on the back of your tongue instead of at the forefront? Well, it's interesting. I, I could have anticipated that question, so I did think about it a little bit. And, it, and the answer to that question is not always the same. Right. And it hasn't been the same throughout my life. I, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, ourselves uh, often influence those. I, I will say um, that I go back. I'm in a time of turmoil and in a time when I find myself having difficulty articulating things. I actually go back and, and, not, and, and don't read so much that, that's contemporary. Now, I do read what's contemporary clearly. I need to do that uh, yeah. because where we live but, and when we live and how we live. But I, I find myself now going back to those poets um, who influenced me in my early career. And I don't mean when I was in the, the third grade or the eighth grade <laughs> <laughs> at all. But when I was doing this seriously as an adult or at a point in time when I thought I was an adult. And I also find myself often reading the work of, of people that I had the opportunity to know as human beings. But lately, well, I've, that said, I love the romantics. Mm -hmm. I did my graduate study in Wordsworth and in Keats, and Keats appears in several poems yes. in, in, my, in my book, um, Wordsworth in one and, and only one, I think. So 
I, I can't get away, and nor would I ever want to get away um, from that love or, or that influence. But I can think of lots of poets who have one poem th that that has really spoken to me, and then I want to go back to, and then I do go back to now. Um, I've been reading, interestingly enough, James Wright. Hmm. Um, I think he, he writes beautifully. I, I met him early in, in my writing life and was, was um, I was very impressed with his work, at, but I was touched by him as a human being. And hmm. he struck me as a very sad and lonely man. I, I don't know. Um, I love Wendell Berry. I think that that's oh, probably not a surprise at all. Um, absolutely love Wendell Berry. Um, Jane Kenyon, mm. I like very much. Um, Jane Hirschfield now. Um, a couple of poems or poets um, that I've really fallen in love with as a single poem are Amy Clampett, who didn't publish her first poem until she was 64 years old. And I thought nice. that was a wonderful <laughs> <time>. <laughs> um, And Howard Moss. Okay. Is that enough? Oh yeah, that's, that's plenty, that's plenty. That, that I, should, just, I, I just like to hear. Contemporaries, I, you know, I, I should talk about some contemporaries as well. And I had a wonderful, I, I, I loved, um, Lucille Clifton's uh, uh, mm. poem, poetry and, and her um, book, Blessing the Boats. And I had a wonderful opportunity uh, a, a couple of years be before she died to, to spend three days with her at, oh, at a very God. small writer's retreat in, in Maryland. And ended up sitting next to her and conversing with her during breaks and just found her to be such a, a wonderful and engaging person as you might have um, expected. Um, but I was, th I was there. I went because she was going to be there. And, and I, I think her work is wonderful. Rita Dove, Natasha Trethwe as well. All those. All those great names. All those great names. It's always a delight to hear, you know, what other poets are looking at. Um, you know, one of the great things about doing Poet Kind is meeting all these great folks, but then also learning what to go to next, you know, you know, you listed a few folks that I hadn't even heard of yet. I'll be, you know, I'll be doing my research and then carrying that into the next place I go. I, that, I, I just love asking that question. Yeah, it, it's, it's surprising to me that when I answer the question, I don't answer Elliot Auden and um, Stevens, mm -hmm. because I spent a lot of time studying them as well. And I, I think that they're just, extraordinary <laughs> and I don't know that any contemporary poets are, are ever going to outperform them um, mm. in, in my mind and and I go downstairs and I look at their collected works and I can barely hoist them off the bookshelf <laughs> <That's> <laughs> 990 pages or, or whatever they are yeah. and and I can't tell you why but if you would ask me what I thought was was the, the finest short poem in the well, I'll say the last century because I guess we're in the 21st now. In English, I would have to say, um, I think it's Auden's Musée des Beaux-Arts. Hmm. It says so much so compactly to me. Yeah. When I had um, talked with you earlier on the phone, you mentioned that you were involved in, v is it VCCA? Yes, yes. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. It's, it was new to me, and, you know, I think there would be some folks out there who could. You know, I would, I would love to talk about VCCA because I can say to you that this book would never have happened without the VCCA. In fact, a lot of my writing wouldn't have happened. The VCCA stands for the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. It's a, a, an um, artist community, an artist colony in Amherst, Virginia. Amherst, Virginia is um, be between Charlottesville, Virginia and Lynchburg, Virginia, high up on um, a hill and it looks out over the Blue Ridge, the Shenandoah. 
Mm. A number of these poems were were composed there, and a number of these poems are are actually set there. It's it's an interesting, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, artist colony because it's not just a writer's colony. There are about twenty five artists in residence at at any one time. They're writers of every genre. They're um, visual artists of every genre, and they're composers as well. Mm. And each of us um, has a, a sleeping room and a separate studio, um, working privately, quietly, and alone all day long with the unwritten expectation that no one interrupts anybody else or would dare knock on a door unless invited. And then um, we get together in, in the evenings around the meal. And um, Susan, I have to tell you that uh, while I love being there with other writers and poets and have learned a lot from them, I always seek the tables where I find more visual artists. Mm. Oh, that makes sense. Because I just love to, to absorb their conversations and listen to what they're saying and see the way that, understand the way they see the world. And, and it was one of those visual artists whom I met there and became close friends with whose painting did your is, cover uh, is, did the cover of my yeah. book. And, and the, and I'll have to say that the VCCA made me believe in myself and my work in a way that, that I did not before I went there. Mm -hmm. um, and the very first time I went to the VCCA as I was walking up from the parking lot, not knowing exactly what was going to greet me on the way to the, the building to, to check in, there was a, another young man who, who looked just as, um, <laughs> just as confused as I was about what we were supposed to do next. And I, I struck up a conversation with him. It was his first time there as well. And he turned out to have a studio in there. And he was a composer. And his name was Gary Davison. And we got to be friends. And um, what happens at this, uh, at the VCCA, is as people are getting ready to leave, they generally open their studios to um, others. And um, readers read, and uh, artists sh show their work, and uh, composers perform. and. So Gary heard my poetry and I heard his music and there was just some harmony there. I don't mean to be corny with that word, but um, so that was, that was in 2004. Um, he happened to live near me. 2011 <laughs> in the summer, I got a call from him and he asked me to come have lunch with him. And I did. And he said, Peg, I've just been commissioned to write a choral symphony for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Mm. And I am delighted to do that, but I can write the music, but a choral symphony needs words. And I, and I just looked at him and I said, and you're asking me to do this? This was in the summer, all right? So there was not a whole lot of time. Right. And we, and we live, here in the shadow of the Pentagon. Mm. And so this community was impacted in a way that few others other than New York, of course, were. I said, well, I'm honored, I don't know. And then I, then I looked at him and I said, well, I suppose you're gonna wanna end with spring, aren't you, Gary? <laughs> and he said, yes, Peg, I am. And I said, well, that means I have to start with summer, doesn't it? And summer's a very hard season, Susan, to write about. Mm. I don't know. But at, at any rate, I, I'm going on a bit long here, but I'm only, I, I feel rhapsodic about it because this was, this really was, I, I, I do believe that to date, and, and maybe I can say it on my deathbed, um, the most um, important thing um, that I have done in my poetic life was to write, to write the lyrics to a choral symphony to be performed on the 10th anniversary of September 11th. Mm -hmm. And it was performed in Washington, DC in a very large space. And we had, you know, families of, of Pentagon victims were sitting there and, and, and some of the folks themselves and others who were touched as in, in a way that, that only people who knew folks and who could 
drive by and see that gaping hole in, in the side of an iconic building could feel. So um, that happened because of the BCCA and the kind of um, relationships get created there and nurtured there and nurtured there in a very short period of time. I mean, you can, you can leave after three weeks or a month and um, feel like you've known something, someone for your whole life and mm. your own work is enriched by it. So um, thank you for asking. It's the VCCA is, as you can imagine, closed right this, at this yes. moment. And um, we'll be for throughout through the end of this year at least um bit reopening when we can all go there and and work together safely and, uh, yeah. and look forward to that day and it will so. yeah. well thank you so much for sharing that and i'm so glad that the conversation progressed into talking about the the choral symphony because that was something i was really hoping that we would get to so thank you for sharing that uh, what a profound uh, experience. Well, it was, and then to hear what he, the music that he composed. And mm. He, I went first, and 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 then the the music followed, and and to hear that was just so touching. Yeah. Now, is there a place online that people could hear it? Is there? Do you know if there's a? I don't think there is. Okay. Um, Unfortunately, there there was a there was a recording that was made. It was a new person recording it, and there were problems with it. So I've said to him, you know, we're coming up on another anniversary. I think we need to look for an opportunity to to have it performed again. Well, Peggy, I want to thank you. This has been such a delight to sit and chat with you for a little while to learn more about your work and about VCCA. Previously, I had asked you if you would read another poem, and I'm wondering if you would help ease us into closing out the episode with the poem, Come Now. I would be delighted to do that, Susan. And I'm glad that you asked me to read this one. First time anyone has. Come Now. Come now and do not hesitate. The hour is late and time we should go in. Make the night watch, open the shade, take off our shoes and wait the morning. Come closer now so you can see. She has joyfully thrown off the white coat of her sorrow, could not wait until tomorrow to chase the light, dance barefoot, agile bright across the dewdress fields. Come away now and let us attend to what we must. Find the way to trust what winnowed hearts discern. It is a sacred grace to slip into the place for which she wholly yearned. I feel like I should end the podcast right there, but I won't. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to ask, um, do you have social media where people can find you and follow you. And also, um, I know folks out there are gonna to wanna to get this book. Can you share where they can find that? Absolutely. Um, they certainly can uh, contact Paraclete Press, my publisher, to um, get a copy of the book. And I wanna say thank you to Paraclete, not just for um, the fact that they're my publisher, but because they produce such beautiful, physically beautiful books. Mm -hmm. um, and, and um, so Paraclete Press, um, Amazon, of course, uh, barnesandnoble.com, christianbook.com, and, and any independent bookseller ought to be able to get, get the book for folks. And I really want to um, promote that as well. Um, independent booksellers are per, perhaps an endangered species, and that is, uh, that is too bad. So yeah, it's, place, it's important to support it's them. It's really important to support them all. But it, but any any way people generally um, hunt down books and purchase them, they can find my books. So okay, and again, that's exploring this terrain. Yes, and also they can uh, they can uh, sample some of the poems um, that are in my book that we didn't read today on my website 
www.margaretbingram.com. Um, you can learn a little more about me. They can see some of my photography um, on that site as well and read excerpts. I think there are seven poems there, one from each of the seven sections of, of the book and none of them that we read today. So they can oh, terrific. taste of a, a little more of the, the uh, spectrum there. Yeah, well, thank you. And with that, I'll bring it to a close and just I'm probably ask you something that every interviewer asks. What is a small piece of advice for a writer that, that you would share? Trust your heart and trust your inner voice. And I, and I you know, it's, it's easy to imitate and imitation's fine as a learning tool. But each one of us has a very unique voice. We know that. I mean, we have fingerprints that are unique and we also have voice prints that are unique in our physical voice. And I think the same is true for writers. If they just have the courage to listen to their own voice and to, to, to speak it. Yeah, to trust it. That's great. Peggy, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I hope you have a beautiful day and I appreciate you spending a little bit of time with me here at Poet Thank Times. you, Susan. I certainly appreciate it. Please look for more information on Margaret's website at Margaret Ingram, that's I-N-G-R-A-H-A-M dot com. And for more information on exploring this terrain, visit paracletepress.com or visit your favorite book buying location. Talking with Margaret was so much fun, which made for one of the hardest episodes I've ever had to edit. We talked for close to two hours and the tangents we went off on reminded me of the necessity of connection community. We talk like old friends, even though this was our first meeting. I hope you're able to find those times, whether on Zoom or via phone call. Yes, people still do those or by social distancing with a mask on. Human connection matters. So that's it for today. I'll leave you with the hope of a kinder place. Get out there and do what it is you were created to do. I have enjoyed seeing the success of several previous guests with new books big awards, all kinds of good things coming together for them. And I applaud them for, as Margaret said, they listened to their hearts. They were true to who they were meant to be. Poet Kind will have one more episode in season four and then another short break while I gather a new guest list and bring more great voices to the table. And remember, we are always better together. Let's lift each other up. Compare notes, not ourselves. Our individual gifts are important, so bring those to the table. As always, you can find PoetKind on Instagram and Twitter at PoetKindPodcast. I look forward to seeing you there. Take care, stay safe and healthy, and keep creating. <laughs>